Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God, our Father, and the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Have you ever read a book where you got to the end and you were unsatisfied? Or maybe watched a movie and you get to the end of the movie and all of a sudden there's some surprise event that takes place leaving you hanging. There's a reason why people write cliffhangers and movies are meant to leave you hanging. It's usually because there's something more coming. There's something more to the story. You'd be surprised, perhaps, to find out how often the Bible is filled with cliffhangers. How many times there's a story, and yet it gets to the end and you feel unsatisfied. You get to the end of the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, and you have the death of Jacob. And they take his bones and have him buried, and they are in Egypt. They're left in Egypt, wondering what's going to happen next. They're not in their homeland. You get to the end of the books of Moses to Deuteronomy, and they're supposed to go into the land of Canaan and inherit all the promises, and there they are standing on the border, and it ends with Moses dying, and they're not in the land. You come to the end of the Old Testament, and the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, the prophet ends the last verses by saying, the day of the Lord is coming. Why does the Bible have so many cliffhangers? You come here to our study. We've been looking at Jonah now for almost two months, working our way through it, the story of Jonah. And after all this time we've put in, you get to the end of the story, and it ends with a question. The Lord is speaking to Jonah about how he had given him this plant which grew up and gave him shade during the heat of the day. And then the plant is destroyed overnight. And Jonah starts complaining because the heat of the day is too much. And the Lord says, you pitied the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand, from their left, and also much cattle. The end. It ends with a question. It's interesting to think, why does it end with a question? What is is the ending to the story? What, What happens with Jonah? Does he listen? Does he know the answer to that question? Does he repent? Does he go back to Nineveh? But it doesn't tell us. So today we're going to look at the conclusion of Jonah. What is the story all about? And how does the story end? So first you have to think about, well, what is this story trying to say? I was struck in studying this week after week. And all along I kept thinking, for whatever reason, the story was about Nineveh. I kept thinking this this is about God saving Nineveh, that the important thing is to get Jonah to Nineveh, save the city, and live happily ever after. 
And it struck me, getting to the last three or four weeks here, that the story is not about Nineveh. If the story were about Nineveh, guess where it would have ended? If the story were about Nineveh, it would have ended at the end of chapter 3, where the Lord saw how they turned from their evil, he relented of the disaster he would set to do to the city, and he did not do it, and they were saved. The end. Happily ever after. That would be a good story, a good note to end on. After all, God had gone through so much work to get Jonah to do the right thing. Jonah had been caught in the storm, ready to perish with all of the sailors on the ship, and God intervened. Jonah was going to drown thrown into the depths of the sea. His life was fading away, and the Lord intervened and sent a fish, which delivered Jonah to land. God finally got Jonah to the city where this evil, wicked city of the Ninevites and the Assyrian who were guilty of so many atrocities and in a day overturns it all, and they repent. It would seem like that'd be the end of the story, but it's not. Instead, the story goes on to talk about Jonah's reaction, how he was not pleased that the Lord saved the city. Instead, he was upset. He wished the Lord would have destroyed it, and so he complains to the Lord. He actually wants to die, and the Lord says, you had compassion on this plant. You were concerned for it because it was giving you shade, and now it's gone. Should I not have that much more concern for the city of Nineveh? 120,000 people, souls. No, the story is not about Nineveh, it's about Jonah. Which is interesting to think about because some scholars, so-called scholars, will debate, well, who wrote Jonah? And some will perhaps argue that, well, Jonah couldn't have written the story. Some will come at it from, well, there's just fanciful stuff like getting swallowed by a fish and staying in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. But we can dismiss that because if we're going to take that approach, then we have to throw out the whole Bible and all the miracles. Others will say, well, Jonah couldn't have written it because look at how he's portrayed why would Jonah want to portray himself so badly? If this is an autobiography, it's the worst autobiography ever written. Why wouldn't he have told the ending of the story, how Jonah finally gets it? If Jonah wrote this story, then the prayer from the belly of the fish one of the reasons that you would think actually Jonah did write the story, because who else was there in the belly of the fish to hear the prayer? Who else could have recorded this, shared it, what well, was prayed from the fish? So, of course, I come from the standpoint that Jonah did write this. And if Jonah did write this, there's a very good reason why he wrote it, and there's a good reason why he didn't give an ending. Because ultimately, Jonah is giving this message not to Jonah. He's already had the story. Every time I give my catechism students a new assignment to study a book of the Bible, this year we're studying Matthew. 
And the first thing I have them do is ask six questions. Who wrote it? Who was it written to? When was it written? How was it arranged? And what was the central aim of the story? So we go through these questions. And the first question is key, and the second question is key. Who wrote it? So if Jonah wrote it, it's not even as important as who is it written to. Have you thought about that since we started this series? Who was this first given to? And you can figure it was about in the range of the Old Testament when the northern kingdom had not yet been destroyed. You go to 2 Kings, you hear about Jonah preaching to the kings in the northern kingdom. So before they were led into exile, and guess who the people are that end up conquering the northern kingdom and taking them into exile? The Ninevites. It's the Assyrians, a hundred years later, that conquer the northern kingdom and take these people into exile. What would this story mean to them, to the Israelites who are going to be conquered by this very people? Think about who it was written to, because then it's not about Jonah. It's about Israel. God pursuing Israel. So it's not about God pursuing Nineveh. It's not about God pursuing Jonah. It's now about God pursuing Israel, God's people. And what is the message he wants to give them? This would explain why there's no ending. Because if there's no ending, then it leaves the story in the hands of the reader. It leaves the story in the hands and minds and hearts of the Israelites to say, wait a second. What does this mean for me? God is pursuing Israel. And what does he want them to know? It's a relentless pursuit of God. He sends a fearsome storm. He sends the confinement of the fish. He sends the distress of the withered shade plant. All of these symbols are teaching Israel how God intervenes in their history to get their attention and call them to his purpose. How sometimes very bad things happen and God allows it to happen in order to get people, grip them in the mission of God and send them into a new purpose. He relentlessly pursues Israel so that their heart would be turned to his heart. Because what is God's heart like in the story? How is it described? Jonah knows what his heart is like. He says, I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. In other words, God wants Israel to know his heart, that it is not a heart of vengeance. It's not a heart that's seeking to get even with people. It's not a heart that's seeking to destroy things he doesn't like. It's a heart that wants to transform what he doesn't like. 
that wants to reach into those places where there's so much evil and darkness that we would say you might as well wipe it out. It's worth nothing anymore. It's lost. And God would say, no, there's yet a seed there. There's yet a purpose there. There's yet something I could do so that God will go to every extent that he can, not only to save Nineveh, but to get our hearts to think like his heart. Which really brings us to our own stories. Because if this story is about God pursuing Jonah, if it's about God pursuing Israel, then it's only good and given to us because it's also about God pursuing us today in our stories. There are some churches in Poland that date back to the 18th century. And when they designed these churches, they built a very unique pulpit. You can look online or you can visit these churches in Poland and see they built the pulpit in the design of a fish's head. It's one of these big cathedrals, so the ceiling is is super high and the pulpit is elevated six feet off the ground. And in order to get into the pulpit, the preacher has to climb the ladder, go through the belly of the fish before he appears in its mouth and preaches the word. And what they're doing there in those churches is remembering the story of Jonah. And they're saying that any preacher that's going to get up and address God's people with the word needs to first go through the belly of the fish. God's relentless pursuit of you means that there are times when he will send a fearsome storm. A storm which forces you to stop everything you're doing which forces you to give up the pursuit of the fantasy that you had in your mind about what life would be and how glorious you were going to be and how beautiful everything was. The sorts of fantasies that are actually lies that the devil sows in the world, leading people to all sorts of hurtful and destructive behaviors. The fantasies that are nothing but a fantasy and a mirage, what Jonah calls Tarshish. He sends the fearsome storms to stop us from our pursuit of the fantasy so we can see God pursuing us. So we can turn and listen. Sometimes God sends the fish, the confinement of the fish's belly, Three days and three nights representing however long it takes for God to teach us what he wants us to know. So we get into that situation where it's, it feels like a death trap, a death sentence. It's stripped us of all our own power, all our own control to determine the outcomes by what we do. But ultimately it's a gift because the fish is moving us from where we were to where God wants us. The fish is God's appointed grace that gets us from the life, the drowning that we were going through and delivers us onto land for new life 
redemption, resurrection, and a new mission. And sometimes God has to still send a third thing, the shade plant. The time after we have even gone and done what God asked us to do, but we're still not getting it. And so he puts us into that chaotic predicament of one day things are good, the next day things are bad. What's going on, God? The shade plant that grew up over Jonah one day was gone the next. And what's Jonah do? He's complaining. So he makes us face the distressing, scorching sun in order to test our hearts, to see if we will be humble enough to give up our creature comforts, the sorts of things that lead us to apathy toward not caring at all. And he awakens us to see that we're not the only ones being scorched by the sun. There's a whole city of 120,000 people here that have no shade. And for us to sit back under the comfort of our shade is doing them no good and it's doing us no good. He wants us to see the city again. So he asks us that before we were to get up and give a word of wisdom, we climb the ladder into the belly of the fish and experience what God is teaching us through trials. Trials that teach us to depend on him, to depend on his loving kindness and not give up on it. Because when the story gets to the ending and he asks this question, we know that, like Jonah, we're not equipped to finish the story. There's really nothing we can do to make up for what we've done wrong. And so it's this open-ended story because there's something more coming, and it's not about us. It's not about Nineveh, it's not about Jonah, it's not about Israel, and it's not even about you at this point. It's about Jesus. Jesus who said there's a greater than Jonah that's here. Jesus is the greater Jonah. Because he did what none of us have done right. He had to still the storm that was about to destroy all his disciples. He had to be confined to human flesh. God himself confined to human flesh, to suffering, to death, to burial in the belly of the earth. He had to face the distress of the scorching sun, the distress of the cross. So he would be tested to see to the ultimate limit of his humility. And when Jesus was at the point of ultimate testing, dying on the cross, he looks down on Nineveh and the people that aren't doing this to him, that have put him there, that are torturing him, have no clue what they're doing, and he says, Father, forgive them. Just like God in the story of Jonah They don't know their right hand from their left hand. When you go through these stories of the Bible, Genesis leaving an open end with the people in Egypt, the stories of Moses ending open-ended, 
on the brink of the promised land with Moses dying. Malachi, ending the Old Testament, the day of the Lord is coming. And even the story of Acts. We get to the end of the book of Acts. And how does it end with the Apostle Paul? He's imprisoned. He's in Rome. The people, the Jewish people aren't listening. But it says he never stopped preaching the kingdom, which launches us into this whole new chapter that we are in. Jesus died. Jesus rose. Jesus commissioned his disciples and said, go now into all the world, into every nation under heaven, because God always has another chapter. The chapter to Jesus wasn't done just because he has risen from the dead. It's continuing on with the sending of the Spirit and the church you're now living in. And your story's not done, no matter what those chapters and moments have proven to you that you've failed, you've not listened, you've gone the wrong way, you're experiencing trials, there's another chapter. You're still under God's grace. And he's sending every one of us into that mission. So when he asked the question at the end, should I not have compassion on Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left? If you come to that last question and you don't know the answer by this point, I suggest you go back and read it again. Because like Jonah and God's spirit, I don't think I'm here to tell you the answer to that question. It's for you to search the scriptures, for you to listen to God. It's for you to look around at the ministry and mission that's in front of this church right now. How many people are there in your life that are like the Ninevites and don't know their right hand from the left? How many families, parents, marriages, and divorces that you know of that don't know their right hand from their left? They're all living in a cliffhanger. And we are living in a cliffhanger. Remembering now God's relentless pursuit of those he loves. Amen.